Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we'll start reading at verse 32, down through verse 39. We're uh, skipping over verses 25 down to 31. A lot of that we have uh, covered. There's some nuances that will also be covered later on. And we're actually skipping over quite a bit of verses 32 through 36 because kind of the heart of that will be brought out even more so in John chapter 8. Uh, but uh, we're going to focus our attention uh, we'll kind of get a running start through verses 32 to 36, and then we'll focus our attention on 37 to 39. Before we do so, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Gospel of John, which so clearly delineates who Jesus Christ is and what it is that every human being is required to do with him. And so as we see this morning, this great Gospel invitation in the midst of people trying to arrest Jesus and increasing opposition, we ask that you make it clear uh, in our hearts uh, who your Son, our Savior, is, what He's come to do, and thus how we're called to respond to this uh, great call and this invitation. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. Well, actually, let me back up to verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, when the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, sort of getting a running start. If you notice in verse uh, 31, we're told that many of the people uh, believed in Jesus Christ. He had delayed going up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, this is one of the major feasts on the Jewish calendar, one of the three major feasts. He had delayed going up there. This was not his time to be crucified. That'll come in six months at the Passover. So he shows up midweek, starts teaching in the temple, has many confrontations with people, and, and people start reasoning this out a little bit, asking themselves, uh, if, the, if the Messiah actually does come, will he, actually, will he do more signs than this man has done? <laughs> will he do more miracles? Will he have this kind of authority that sort of blows us away? Uh, how much greater could the Messiah be, the Christ be, than this man here? And so they're reasoning this out, thinking about this, and many are starting to believe in him, and rightly so. They're figuring this out. Yet, clearly the Messiah wouldn't be doing any more than this Jesus. Clearly, this must be the Messiah. And so the Pharisees are having their feathers ruffled a little bit. In verse 32, they catch wind of this, and they send the temple officers to go and arrest Jesus. So in the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus' competition, he is shutting down their religion, as it were. They have a religion of self-righteousness, 
And Jesus is saying, actually, there's nobody righteous. I've come to call sinners. You need to believe in me, not in, not in, not in the Pharisees. You need to praise and glorify me, not praise and glorify them. So the Pharisees have had about enough of this. They want to shut this program down. Let's go arrest him. Let's have a trial, whatever the case may be, even though it won't be much of a trial, as Nicodemus mentions uh, later on in the chapter. Uh, but they, they want to end Jesus' ministry because he is a threat to them. And so they send officers to do uh, just that. And in verses 33 to 34, Jesus tells them in the face of uh, about to be arrested, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He'll, he'll expand in chapter 8. We'll look at that in, in much more detail in chapter 8 because he elaborates on what he means by that. Uh, but in verse 33, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who, uh, who sent me. In other words, he's telling the officers and everybody in the court, including the Pharisees who would probably catch wind of this, you've come to arrest me, you want my time to end now, but it's not ending now. I will be here a little bit longer. It won't be very long. You don't have to bear with me for much longer before I'm crucified and ascended and glorified and I pour out my spirit. But your attempts to arrest me, your attempts to bring, to bring an early death into me, it's just not gonna happen. I will be here a little bit longer before I go into glory. So after Jesus said what he did, in verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Now, the dispersion happened uh, in the days of the Babylonian exile when Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked Jerusalem and all of Judea. And many of the Jews were scattered all over the place. And when the exiles returned back to uh, Jerusalem with Ezra, Nehemiah, rebuilding the temple, the priesthood, etc., many of the Jews didn't come back. They stayed scattered among the nations in what is called the dispersion. So they're, they're wondering, he's telling us that he's going somewhere that we can't go to. Is he going to go and teach the Jews among the Greek territories and teach the Greeks as well? Is that what he's doing? Is that what he's talking about? So nobody understands yet that he's saying he came from the Father, he came from heaven, and he's going to be returning there. The mass amount of people did not get this. They don't understand. They don't have spiritual eyes to see or ears to hear what Jesus is referring to. And then in verse 37, John shifts to a different scene. From Jesus sort of mingling with the crowds and teaching in the temple alongside other rabbis, to this last day of the feast, the great day, he, turn, he, he turns this scene. And I want us to notice particularly uh, three things uh, in these three verses. I want us to note the setting, which is very important, or the context, what's going on around Jesus. And then notice the invitation, secondly, and then thirdly, the overflowing heart as a result of those who believe. So first, uh, let's take a look at the setting, and I'm asking you to bear with me patiently. There's a, a lot going on here, but it's so crucial and important to what Jesus is about ready to do. So verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. As I mentioned, Jesus had been at the feast from the middle of the week till now. So he's been at the feast for maybe, let's say, three or four days. He's been mingling with the crowds. People know that he's there, but he's not come out in fullness, not made a show of himself, as it were, not put himself, so to speak, front and center on the, on the religious stage. Uh, during this time on this great and last day, things are about to change. And on this last day, 
there are a few details that are going on, which I think are important to know. One of them is that there's a water carrying procession from the pool of Siloam uh, to the temple area, and particularly the altar of sacrifice. That happens every day, but on the great day, uh, the procession was a little bit bigger. So the priests, led by the high priest, would go out, they'd fill a, a golden pitcher full of water, they'd carry it back through the water gate into the temple area, and when they got into there, they would circle around the altar seven times. Now, some historians tell us that they did this seven times on the last day of the feast to represent uh, going around the city of Jerusalem seven times before the walls fell. Because the Feast of Tabernacles, remember, was the feast which celebrated living in booths in the wilderness. That didn't end until they took down Jericho. So there's symbolism. There's, there's a, a little bit of imagery there. They'd walk around the altar seven times, and then they'd pour the water out um, uh, at the base of the altar. During this time, there's a choir or the people singing the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And uh, uh, the, so it's, it's a, a joyous occasion. In fact, of all the feasts, this one is called the, the Feast of Joy. People are delighted about this. In fact, when the priest came through the water gate with the water pitcher, trumpets would blast three times. Uh, just a note of joy, a note of triumph, a note of victory. So this is, you might say, everybody's feeling good at this feast. Everybody's happy. Uh, it's, a, it's a light and joyful occasion. And when the water was poured out, the water signified a few things. Let me just walk through them. Uh, the first thing it signified was rainwater. In Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 17, the Feast of Booths is actually tied up with rainwater. Uh, everyone shall go up year after year to the Feast of Booths. If any one of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So the people understood the harvest has come in. They're entering the rainy season. And in this rainy season, they need rain for the land to be replenished or next year's crops uh, will not grow at all. So the water at the Feast of Booths symbolized the need for the Lord's provision to send rain, just physical rain upon the earth. Uh, the second thing that this water symbolized was uh, wilderness water that God gave the Israelites when they were dwelling in tents in the wilderness water to drink so that they weren't dehydrated and died. He gave them manna. He also gave them water during their time. So this was a reminder to them, you lived in booths and God gave you water to drink so that you didn't die in the wilderness. It also symbolized third, salvation. Isaiah 12, three, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That is a passage associated with the Feast of Booths. So when the people saw the priest drawing water and carrying this water, they thought he's drawing water from the wells of salvation. So pictured in this Feast of Booths isn't just the past, dwelling in the wilderness, God sustaining us in the wilderness, entering the promised land by walking around Jericho and the walls falling. It's also envisioning the future when God's salvation will come and people will be able to quench their thirst on God's salvation. And the priest, Arcane Hughes mentioned this, the, the priest would oftentimes would hold up the water pitcher and people from the crowd would shout to the priest to hold the water pitcher higher. And he said, many people counted it a high point in their lives to see that water pitcher raised up and poured over the altar. When all of this was going on, Jesus stood up and cried out in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
all of the symbolism going on, all of this meaning, this whole festival, and he stands up, John says. <laughs> so this is part of the invitation. He stands up, which means he's putting himself in a bit of a prominent position now. People can see him and notice him. So he's, he's making himself the issue now. He's not sitting by the wayside. He's not letting the symbol, he's saying as a word, this whole feast has to do with me and he can hardly help himself, beloved. He knows he's the fulfillment. He knows he's God in the flesh. He's come to booth among the people. He knows what he's going to say as far as where people can find their thirst quenched. And so he stands up and he cries out with a loud voice to the crowds. And this expression cried out is literally a term for a raven's piercing cry to cry out loudly with an urgent scream or shriek using inarticulate shouts that express deep emotion. So some people have said that the crowd is probably quiet when Jesus spoke. Others, you know, we don't know what the crowd is doing, but we know Jesus with a sense of urgency, sort of like a, a parent, you see your two-year-old running across the street, right? There's a, there's a passionate urgency about what you tell them when you say, no, Jesus looks at the crowd he looks at the false religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. They're trying to arrest him. They want to do away with him. He sees people. He has compassion on them. He knows that he's the only way they can be saved. And he's moved in his inmost being to passionately cry out above all the noise and to make himself the issue. He's standing front on the stage saying, I want everybody to look at me. I want to get everybody's attention. If anyone thirsts, like the people in the wilderness did, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. There are three things about this thirst that I want us to notice. The first is that it's open to anyone. If a man or if any man, woman, or child, if any human being thirsts, it's an open invitation, beloved, to any human being. If you want to get into Harvard, you've got to be smart. If you want to get into the NFL, you've got to be athletic. If you want to get into elite military, you've got to be fit and you've got to be mentally tough. If you want to get into the White House, you got to be qualified. you got to have a background check if you want to go visit there, I'm assuming. If you want to get into heaven, you simply have to be a thirsty human being. That's it. You have to be a thirsty human being. That's the only qualification for coming and drinking and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every human being is thirsty. We all thirst. In fact, Ray Pritchard put it this way so well, I just want to read for you what he said, describing human thirst. Inside all of us, there is a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. We all have a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. Some people thirst for sexual fulfillment, so they hop from one relationship to another. Some people think career advancement is the key to happiness, so they move from job to job. Husbands leave their wives for other women, and still they are not happy. Wives leave their husbands for other men, and they aren't happy either. Some of us are adrenaline junkies, always on the move, looking for the next jolt of excitement, the next big adventure. The next battle to fight, trying to fulfill the wild at heart impulse we feel on the inside. But adventure itself never lasts very long. Life returns to the ordinary and we wonder, what do we do now? Some people thirst for significance, others thirst for power, others thirst for fame or wealth or close relationships to fill the lonely void inside. There is the thirst of the intellect. There is the thirst of the conscience. We are guilty and need forgiveness. There is the thirst of the heart. We desperately search for happiness and we don't know where to find it. All human beings are thirsty. That's the qualification. That's the greatness of this invitation. If anyone thirsts, a wide open door to every single human being, beloved. Something else about this 
invitation is that the water is free that Jesus offered. He doesn't say, look, uh, if you're thirsty, come to me and we'll bargain out a price and then you can be satisfied. No, the water is absolutely free that he offers. And what Jesus is saying is that he alone can satisfy thirsty souls. What people thirst for can only be found in Jesus. It's a universal human truth, beloved. When we meet strangers on the street, what they can know about us and what we can know about them is that the only way their souls and our souls will ever be satisfied, the only way our spiritual thirst will ever be quenched is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a statement of fact. It's the way it is. He alone can satisfy our souls. And what he's saying here is mind-blowing. Either he is a megalomaniac with a massive ego, very self-centered, narcissistic, or he's God in the flesh saying, if you want to be satisfied, if you want spiritual wholeness again that was lost in the Garden of Eden on account of sin, then you need me. You have to believe in me. You have to come and drink of me. I find it helpful often, maybe you don't, but I find it helpful to read stories of people who have arrived as non-Christians and they've drunk from all that the world has to offer or an element that the world has to offer. They've drunk everything that there is in that element and they find themselves empty. Jim Carrey put it this way that he's an actor, a great actor. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady is one of my favorites to follow. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, what else is there for me? Anthony Hopkins, you know, I meet young people and they want to act and they want to be famous. And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. Jesus is saying, look, for everyone who's thirsty, you can't quench your thirst with the world. You can go for it, but you'll never be quenched. You'll never find satisfaction through anything in this world other than me. And so the invitation is open to everybody. And then here's the invitation. Let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. So he says, let him come to me and drink. You might ask, what does that mean to come to Jesus and to drink? Well, he says right after the period, whoever believes in me. So coming to Jesus and drinking is the same as believing in him. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the crucial element for every human being, beloved. It's coming to Jesus and then drinking of him. It's possible to be around Jesus, to be close to Jesus. It's possible to come to church, to be around other Christians, and to have a general association with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very possible. Just like it's possible to go to a river and to look at the water, or it's possible to go to a feast and to sit at the table and look at the food, and yet never drink, never eat, never believe. What Jesus is saying, everyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. You have to take me in. You have to believe in me. You have to ingest me, as it were. You have to make me your personal Savior and Lord. You have to make me your life. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make a drink. You can spread food in front of a hungry person. You can, you can run a river through someone's house that they live in, but you can't make anybody drink, beloved. 
I can't make you drink, you can't make me drink. In order to receive this soul-quenching grace, we have to drink of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to have our spiritual thirst satisfied. It's possible to do this just by believing in Jesus. And then I want us to look finally at the overflowing heart, the result of this, verses 38 to 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is all about God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, these verses. This is actually a prophecy of what will take place at Pentecost about, what, seven and a half months uh, down the road or so uh, after the Passover, seven and a half months from uh, the current uh, date when Jesus is speaking in this passage. And he says, uh, as the scripture has said, this will take place. Now, it's hard to pin down the exact scripture. This isn't an exact quote, but a passage like Isaiah 58, 11 seems to lend itself to what Jesus is saying, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You shall be watered like, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So again, it's prophesied already in the Old Testament. This is what God's people will be like when the Holy Spirit is poured out. We will become rivers of living water. They'll flow out of our heart or out of our stomach or out of our inmost being, out of our very innards. We will become a fountain. And there are a few things I want us to notice about what is being taught here regarding us as fountains. Every single person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not something that only special Christians experience. It's the experience of every single Christian. There are some people who teach that in order to be filled with the Spirit, we need to have some sort of crazy second blessing or something uh, marvelous or immaculate that happens to us. That's an out-of-body experience. But what Jesus is teaching here is we can actually be overflowing with the Spirit just by believing in Him. That's the experience of ordinary Christian people. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us, takes up residence in us, and then we become overflowing fountains. Uh, the second thing that's being taught here is that in Christ, believers are satisfied. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every believer makes a person content uh, in Christ. A Christian will slowly cease to find satisfaction in the world. A Christian will slowly cease to, to look for quenching of that spiritual thirst in created things. When, when someone comes to Christ, all of a sudden a career isn't a God to serve and to, to quench that inner longing, a career is just a career. All of a sudden money or retirement is just money or retirement. A house is just a house. A car is a car. Clothing is just clothing. A healthy body is just a healthy body. Family is family, right? When, when we come to Christ, our deepest inner longings are satisfied and there's a peace, there's a contentment about us when we are in the Lord Jesus Christ feeding on him. That is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if any of us, well, we'll get to that in conclusion. Robert Murray McChain mentions this. What does it mean that we'll be overflowing uh, fountains it means that when you come to Jesus to drink, you don't get just a single drink, but you get a spring, a fountain, a well. You get Jesus. Rivers of water will flow because a river maker is in you. That's the point. You will never have to search again for a source of satisfaction for your soul. The moment we believe in Jesus, satisfaction in him 
is part and parcel of our lives. And then the third thing I want us to see is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not been given in fullness. He was working, he was saving, but not to the degree that he is in the New Testament. And the, over, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, enables us to overflow in witness to the world. Now, in the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit was poured out, God's people were to invite strangers in, were to welcome the strangers who came to their place. So think of Naaman, welcome him in, show him the way of salvation, he's saved, and then he heads out. Think of Ruth, Ruth is welcomed in. Think of Rahab, Rahab is welcomed in as well. But the people of Israel were not going out. God says, when a foreigner or a stranger comes into your midst and wants to serve me, then welcome them, bring them in, mark them out as belonging to me. That's indeed the case. But the people were not on a mission to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world. But when Pentecost came, that whole paradigm exploded and the Holy Spirit showed up. And all of a sudden, the witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth started happening because the Holy Spirit came. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out into hearts. All of a sudden, God's people are overflowing. They're not stagnant ponds. They're rivers and channels of God's grace. So they're filled up with God's water and it overflows out of us into the rest of the world. And we see that as the gospel goes out into all the regions. And we see the Holy Spirit coming on people after they pray to the Lord and they're filled with the spirit of boldness. And now the world goes, now the, now the gospel goes out. Now God's people go out and bless the world on account of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's part of what it is to live in the new covenant, beloved. We're not stagnant ponds for others to come and fish in. We're rivers now overflowing. We've been filled by God and now out of us comes this water that overflows in blessing to the world through our witness through our good works, through caring for those who don't know the Lord. And that's how the gospel goes out. You might be sitting here as Christians, just in conclusion, this thought, thinking, why am I not overflowing? Why, when I look at my life, does it seem to be like a stagnant pond? And just think of an illustration here. If you go out to Lake Red Rock and shut off the Des Moines River that's coming into Lake Red Rock, what will happen to the lake? It'll dry up. What'll happen to the river on the other side of the dam? It'll be completely dry. So if we find ourselves with no water coming out of our dam, but we read in this passage that when the Spirit comes into our lives, we're going to be like Red Rock Dam with the floodgates open, just water pouring out everywhere. If we see a discrepancy there, it could very well be that our inlet is clogged, that our relationship with the Lord has become stagnant, that we're not feeding on Christ, that indeed our hearts have gone after the world and we've started feeding ourselves spiritually with things in the world, not with Christ. We've tried to quench our thirst on a whole host of things that we cherish and love that aren't Jesus Christ. Beloved, when that happens, our lake will dry up. We'll feel dried up. We'll be spiritually parched and also we'll have nothing else to flow through us because God's grace We've, we've cut it off, as it were, flowing into us. So if we find ourselves not overflowing, indeed, it's worth taking a look at. What is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ like? Is he the one we prize and treasure? Are we quenching our thirst with him? Or are we waking up in the morning, claiming to be Christians and genuinely born again, but we're living for the world? We're living for something, and it's not the Lord. 
and our real desire, the real reason we wake up, the real reason we work so hard, the real reason we do our duties has nothing to do with honoring Christ and showing him our love for him because he's loved us. It has something to do with the world. If that's the case, indeed, we will find ourselves dry and parched. And for anyone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I urge you to close with Christ. There might be some people who have to spend the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. I hope it's not more than an hour, but maybe it'll take some people decades to go around and try everything else. You won't take Jesus' word for it. You think, no, there's actually a lot in this world that I can quench my thirst on. And what you'll discover is after 10 years, what you thought would quench your thirst won't. And you'll probably have bounced from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And you will end up dry, guaranteed, says the word of God, says Jesus. And at that moment in your life, whether you're 20 years old or 50 years old or 80 years old, I hope you'll remember that the only way you'll ever quench that thirst is by Jesus Christ. And I hope you turn to him. I hope you turn to him today. But I hope you turn to him when you realize that there is nothing in the world that can fill that God-sized hole in your water barrel. Nothing is big enough. No ocean is deep enough. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your thirst. Let's pray.